Real good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. Did I turn it on? I did. I'm happy. I couldn't see the button, so it was by faith that I turned that on. Well, I got more actually. If you if you like the pinky one, I'm one of the things that uh, one of the things that kids often want to know when it comes to the whole issue of um, romance. How far can I go? I'll tell you how far you can go. You can go as far as you would with your brother or your sister. About as far as you could go for boys, so you can go about as far as you would with your mum. And there's some things you just don't do with your mum. And that kind of sorts a lot of things out. So if you didn't like the pinky thing, that one will shock you to death. But saved a lot of lives. What a privilege. Thank you so much for the invitation to come to uh, sunny Ballarat because I was down in miserable Melbourne this morning. I haven't seen the sun since about July or June this year. It's a sad thing. Sometimes you have to leave the city just to find out if the sun still shines. And I'm glad you came to church today because God loves people. And church is about God strengthening and helping people. So I reckon when anything gets you in the doors on a Sunday is a good thing. I heard this story about a little um, nun. She used to work for a Catholic healthcare agency. She'd get up in the morning and she'd put on a little habit and she'd drive around and care for sick people in their homes. And one day she was out doing her rounds and her station wagon ran out of petrol about a half a block from a petrol station. She went down to see if she could borrow a can and the man said, look, I'm sorry, someone's using it. And not wanting to waste time for the person to come back with the can, she went back to the station wagon, looked around for the biggest receptacle she could find and it just turned out to be a bedpan. So she went back down the petrol station and filled the bedpan with petrol. Good thinking. Well, now she's walking down the side of the road. Here's a nun walking down the side of the road with a bedpan. And there's a truck pulled up, a couple of workmen having their lunch, and they're watching this nun walk down the side of the road with a bedpan. She comes to the back of a car and pours the contents into the tank. <laughs> and um, one workman turns to the other and he said, you know, I'm not a religious man, but if that car starts, I'm going to church on Sunday. <laughs> now, if that's what got you here this morning... God bless you. Uh, whatever it t- I said, whatever it takes, because God really does want to help people. And this morning we're going to share on something that has been extraordinarily important uh, in my own life. Um, whenever you do come, you, you, one of the things that Helen and I do, we now long, no longer lead a church. We handed our church over seven years ago. And we simply do this. We travel and encourage other churches. And often we're doing things like marriage seminars and so on. And we've, uh, from our church in Mount Evelyn, developed a lot of resources that we love to share. And I'm, I brought a few of those things with me today, and I'm going to just mention a couple. One is my book, if you've never read From Good Man to Valiant Man, it's about male sexuality. But even if, for women, it's a tremendous book to read. You have conversations you've never had before, once you really understand what's going on on the male side of the gender divide. Every young woman needs to understand that. And one particular resource this morning that I'm going to be sharing about, and that's getting a breakthrough in fasting and prayer, because I want to share with you this morning uh, on this vital issue of touching God, of touching God. And uh, why don't we just um, see if we can't make this work. They tell me there's, they, it's with fear and trembling that we do this, because they have no faith in Mac in this house. And I think that's very sad, because um, you should... There we go. Is that good? See? Fear not. Neither let your heart be troubled. <laughs> you believe in Google? Believe also in Mac. <laughs> One of the greatest things you can ever know in life is that it is possible to touch God. Um, for, for all too many people, religion is a, is a theoretical thing. Um, it's you, you can read about it, but you never really, will never really experience much of it yourself. And because I grew up in the church, this matters a lot to me, um, I had an encounter with God at the age of 19 that changed everything. I went to church one Sunday and they preached a sermon on hell and it scared the hell out of me. And uh, I spent the next four days trying to decide how Christian I was prepared to be 
to really make sure I was locked in with Jesus. And in the middle of that, God spoke to me as clear as I'm speaking to you and simply said, I want you to be a minister, which was the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life. I just wanted to be a high school teacher. And God intersected my life and changed my life. I'm so grateful because I think if I'd stayed in high school teaching, I would have been, there would have come a point when to me it was like a black hole where I, f- I felt like I had missed what I'd been born for. But because God intersected my life, I haven't missed what I was born for. Um, God wants you to intersect with him. He wants you to encounter him. And the question for so many is, how do you? And one of the reasons this has become very important to me, again, I mean, it happens regularly in your life. There, there are seasons where it's so clear. If I don't touch God, I don't have an answer for this moment. I have a neighbour just three doors down, three houses down, who fell through a roof a few weeks ago and has become a paraplegic. Um, he has a wife and three teenage boys, and I believe that God can heal him. And, and the question is, well, how can I get God to do that? How can I touch God and get God to do that? And one of the things this morning I want to talk with you about is how do you pursue God? If you want to go beyond the theory, the theory of relationships and the idea, and it's a very attractive idea that you could actually have an encounter with God. How do you do that? What, what does it require? And uh, what does God want from us? And uh, this morning, I want to start here with Isaiah 55. The Bible says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? The question really of that text is so much of our energy, and I'd be, be true for me too. I, put, I have put so much energy into my golf swing. Um, I put so much energy into following Hawthorne, which, I, I, which is entirely understandable, I guess, for many of you. Um, <laughs> I put so much energy into something that really has nothing permanent attached to it. And then God says, well, why would you spend that much energy and time and devotion on something that really doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you will live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That last line grips me a lot because I know about the covenant that God made with David. God made a covenant with David that there would be a king sitting on the throne of Israel that would come from his family line and that king would reign over Israel forever and that has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled forever in Jesus The Bible calls him the son of David. And yet, the fulfillment of this amazing promise was not fulfilled through David's perfection, but through his imperfection. Because one of the things the genealogy of Jesus is willing to put right there in black and white is that Jesus Christ was born son of David, and then right there in Matthew it says, born of Bathsheba, the one who used to be the wife of Uriah. I mean, good Lord, he was never supposed to be married to that woman. It was the the worst mistake that he ever made in his life was to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then murder her husband to cover his tracks. And yet God, in his extraordinary capacity for amazing grace, took the worst moment in his life and wove it into the fulfillment of divine promises. Now, there's a big problem, there's a danger to say that. Because anytime you're talking to a group of people, because we're all weird and we're all sinful little characters from moment to moment, um, someone's likely to be sitting in the audience thinking, oh, that's brilliant. And I was just thinking about making one of those mistakes. (laughs) It it, it sounds fantastic. I mean, if I can can commit this sin and then God will make it fantastic, that's beautiful. Uh, Please do not go down that pathway. Because there's lots of sins that have been committed that were never you know, unfolded that way. They're just plain disasters. But when you encounter God, God will take your worst day. He'll take the biggest mistakes you've made in your life. Oh, look at my young brother. 
See, my young brother put his fists up to my dad when he was 15 years of age, and he said to dad, me and both of them, two of my two young brothers, one of them is dead, the other still lives. I, the, the, the other one died and never quite got out of the trouble they started. Um, both of them put their fists up to dad one day and said, we're not doing anything more you say. We're doing whatever we want. And they got out into the drug scene, the bikes, and a crazy life of immorality for years. Um, as a result, both of them were ended up arrested. One of them did time in jail. The other one, um, when he, he was lying in a rehabilitation centre somewhere and the thought came into his mind that if there is a God, maybe there was a way out of this and he, got him, he checked himself out, hitchhiked across town, came home to my little sister's house and the next morning gave his life to Jesus when a friend of mine prayed for him. And today my, my little brother leads Teen Challenge here in Victoria and he's been serving God. He's now married with three of his own kids and his grandkids and you look at it and you say, God took my brother's worst mistake of putting his fists up to my dad and getting off into years of rebellion in the drug scene and God has taken the worst mistake of his life and turned it into a ministry. So that out of those terrible years, he has now spent the last 20 years or so, um, actually more than that, 30 odd years, uh, rebuilding broken lives and he's, um, the ministry flows out of that mistake. This is an extraordinary thing, that if you feel like you've disqualified yourself, you haven't. No, not if, not if you encounter God. Because if you feel like you've disqualified yourself, you just connect with God and he'll turn even your worst mistake into a redemptive encounter. Don't make the mistake with the hope that he'll do that. But if you've got a passion for God, he has life for you. However, the promise requires something of you. See, this is not an unconditional promise. This is a conditional promise. Um, and the conditions are right there in the text. You don't have to make them up yourself. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. The promise has a currency. Now, it's not money. You can't buy God. The um, Bible talks about the guy in the New Testament thought you could buy the privilege of ministry, and he says, no, that's a bad idea. You're in a lot of trouble. You will never buy this. This is not the currency that works with God. It's another good reason not to give is don't give so that God will do ministry through you because... Um, that's not why he does ministry through people. There is a currency, however. And here's the first element of the currency, and that is to pay attention, to devote yourself, to give to yourself to God, to give yourself, your heart, your ear, your listening ear, to give it to God in devotion. And then the second thing is then to obey, to be willing to do uh, what God um, has to say to you. And as a result, uh, one of the most helpful disciples that uh, has been lived through my generation is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard had devoted himself to trying to help people understand how to encourage people in their discipleship, touching Jesus along the way. And uh, one of the uh, most important words of the early church was this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. They devoted themselves. It was a mark of the early church was God is so real and so big and so capable, he's really worth pursuing. Nothing else in life will, will result in an outcome like pursuing God. And as a result, the question is, well, how do you do it? How do you touch God? How do you draw near to God? If God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you, I want to understand how to do it because I don't want it just to be a theory. And as a result, Dallas Willard, um, in his careful help to people of, in being disciples of Jesus, said you need to understand that there are disciplines that you can pursue. Some of them are disciplines he calls disciplines of engaging, disciplines of connecting with God. Now, my senior pastor, at the moment, my home church is Stairway Church, and Peter McHugh is my pastor. 
when we talk about this stuff, he doesn't like the word disciplines, and, and I get that, because he said, I, I don't want people pursuing God out of discipline. I want them pursuing God out of delight. And the reason he says that is because he's a very disciplined person. So he doesn't need discipline. What he needs is a heartwarming encounter. I, on the other hand, am really lazy and very naughty. And I need lots of discipline. And I have to do some of this by discipline because if I didn't, I'd just watch television all, all my life. I'd just never do anything. And so um, we've kind of come at this from different angles. Very disciplined people don't need to be told to do more discipline. But sometimes really naughty and lazy people could, in, could, could use some help in coming at it from the discipline side. If, if you want to come at it from the delight side, call these the delights of engaging. But if you're a bit naughty like me, then maybe you need the disciplines of engaging. Whatever you do, just engage with God, whether it's a discipline or whether it is a delight. And the beautiful thing about discipline is that if you keep it up and you finally break through the, the drag, because the Bible says the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and so... Being a Christian and living in a naughty body means that you're often got a conflict going on. You want to get up and do something, then you feel, oh, I don't know if I want to. Yes, I do want to. Yes, oh, no, no, I don't. And so there's this war that goes on within you. And if you can break through long enough to touch God, then it becomes a delight and it's kind of like it self-perpetuates. You, you wouldn't want to give it up. And as a result, um, you get a breakthrough. Anyone that's ever tried to stop smoking, I thank God I've never been a smoker, but I've watched people I really love struggle for a lifetime to escape the gravitational tug of nicotine. And even when they break through this, it wants to tug them back again. And the only way they can ever stay really healthy is to fight for it. And sometimes, at least initially, we have to fight for our breakthrough. If you don't need to fight, by all means, just enjoy the whole process. Here's the first one. Disciplines of engaging that have changed my life, that have saved my life. The first one you could call the discipline of study. Engaging with the written and the spoken word of God. Um, somehow you have to find a way of connecting with God. And the Bible says... In the words of Jesus, my word is spirit and my word is life. So you've got to find a way to connect with the word of God. Now, one of the things that we used to do in our own church is if ever you find a really good way of helping people to do significant daily devotions, ones where they know each time they finish, they feel like they heard something from the realm of heaven. Um, if, you, if you can find it, you've changed people's lives. Because without it, you'd get dry and you become unbelieving and everything's hard. Now, we, we've used, one of the processes we used was uh, when I, I heard uh, Wayne Cordero talk about his soap method. How many people have ever heard of the soap method? Well, we could have done a whole morning on that. We're not going to. Your pastor will probably, he knows it. He'll teach it to you one time. The soap method of doing a daily devotion. For me, for the next seven years. That was my way of doing a daily devotion. And what, you know what I've found fascinating? I've been at a number of ministers' conferences where I have watched Wayne Cordero teach pastors how to have a daily devotion. Now, if you've got to teach pastors sometimes how to have a daily devotion, you can guarantee everybody else needs it too. Because the reality is that even though we know the Bible is true and the Bible is the word of God, there's a resistance in connecting with it significantly. And you've got to find a way through that. Um, the, the, the way I found a way through it initially, and this was really helpful to me, was in my early stages of discipleship, somebody introduced me to reading other people's sermons. Now, it depends how you're wired, whether this works for you, but this really worked for me. I got introduced to the works of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And when I started to read his sermons, I wasn't that good at Bible study. So I could open the Bible and I'd read it, and I'd say, yeah, I read it, but I'm not sure what to get out of it. When I read someone else explaining the Bible, man, that changed everything. And it was during one of those uh, experiences. The first book I ever bought of his was his series out of the Book of Romans. He preached in his church on the Book of Romans every Friday night for 15 years to get right through the thing. 
I mean, here's a guy who, he was one of the greatest preachers of the last century. So I got his book on Romans 3 and 4, Justification. And it was while I was reading that book that I came across the sentence that changed my life. In that book, he said these words, it is not easy for God to forgive sin. Well, that was so contrary to everything I think I'd heard all my life going to church that I grabbed my attention. What do you mean it's not easy? Then he began to unpack. Do you understand that God is not only the loving Father, but the judge of the heavens and the earth? How does the judge of the heavens and the earth ever forgive any person without opening the door for Satan to reoccupy heaven? And God is absolutely determined that Satan will never turn heaven into hell. And I'm glad, he, I'm glad someone's putting a, drawing a line somewhere because who wants to live through the, the crazy stuff we've been living through all of our lives and watch that go on into eternity? God has put a mark on the ground and he said heaven is never going to become hell. The problem is how does then God forgive anybody without opening the door to forgiving um, the, the most unrighteous acts that you could possibly imagine and creating the injustices that we've all... And, and he talked about that's why Jesus had to be born of a woman under the law to redeem those so that he might be the, both the just and the justifier. And the moment I changed my life, I thought, I get it. I get why Jesus had to, for the first time, I'd heard it all my life, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and I'd never fully understood it until that moment. It changed my life. From that moment, I wanted to be a preacher. I had been called to preach. I didn't want to do it. And suddenly I thought, everybody's got to hear that. And you're lucky you don't get the whole sermon because it's a ripper. And it would just, <laughs> scare the hell out of you too. And then you'd all go home um, happy or miserable, depending on where you are on the, on the spectrum. But I tell you what, it overflowed into the rest of my family. Helen and I were a young married couple at that stage. I was still a high school teacher. And I remember, I used to work in pubs to earn money, a little extra money, while we were, you know, building our house and so on. And uh, as a result, I was out working one night at the Dorset Gardens. I came home about 11 o'clock one night. And as I came in the back door of the rental where we were staying, I could hear Helen crying up in the bedroom. And I went up into the bedroom and she was sitting up in bed and she was reading the same book, Romans by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Romans 3 and 4. And as she was reading on the cross, it had become so real to her, tears were running down her face. Do you know one of the reasons why we have been such a solid couple for the last 48 years is because we're working with the same boss. We're working with the same uh, ideology. We're working with the same values. She got grabbed by Jesus. I got grabbed by Jesus. And there's no way you could separate the two of us. One of the outcomes was that my wife was touched because I was doing daily Bible study. And if you don't know how, go to your pastor and say to him, Pastor, I've got to figure out a way to study. Could you give me some ideas. Here's the next one. You've got to figure out the real purpose of worship. Because you see, the real purpose of worship is to connect you with an identity beyond yourself. Worship is engaging in the greatness, the beauty, and the goodness of God. And I'd love to talk, this one alone, again, um, I've got some great stuff on this because this has become very real to me partly because of my own struggle. See, I understand the struggles of life because I feel the heat in my own kitchen. In John chapter 4, Jesus came to a little woman who was a, either a sex addict or a relationship addict because she'd been married five times and she was shacked up with her sixth guy right now trying to figure out whether maybe they could make this relationship work. And Jesus said to her, you sure are thirsty. I mean... I've never met anyone. If, if you just asked me for a drink, he said, I would have given you living water. Jesus knew she was thirsty. People have deep longings and they don't understand where they come from. And then they try to figure out, well, what would make me feel happy? What would meet my need? And when they get it wrong, they make one mistake after another. And every addiction is somebody has found a well to drink at that at least makes them feel happy for the moment because there's a cry on the inside that won't stop crying out for fulfillment. And they don't know what it is. And when Jesus met this woman, he said to her, God is looking for worshippers. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, every human being was created for God. Even the atheists. 
Atheists laugh. They say, oh, I wasn't created for God. I've got no desire for God. You haven't got a clue what the cries within your heart are really about. It's one of the great challenges we face. Psalm 19 says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. I don't even know why I struggle like I do. That's what Psalm 19 says. And the atheist was created for God just like the Christian or the Hindu or the Buddhist or the Calathumpian. Everyone was made for God. And as great Saint Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts will know no rest until they find their rest in you. There is something in the human heart that can never know rest because we were never created to do life alone. We were created to do it uh, in intimate relationship with God and with intimate relationship with other people. So when it comes to the issue of worship, Jesus said to this little struggling woman who had this cry for intimacy, you know what? You were created for God. God is searching for worshippers. You're never going to know relief until you find the love of God has touched your heart and you know it's well with your soul. Well, I went through a season in my life where I found myself attracted to a woman who's not my wife. And I hated it because I didn't want to feel that way. I had no idea why it came and I didn't know how to make it go away. I remember sitting at my desk one day and just sobbing, crying, because I hated this thing, but I didn't know how to extract it. And it, I came to, to this verse. God is searching for worshippers. And I said, God, I don't know what the cry within my heart is all about, but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust these words from Jesus and I'm going to bring my broken or my crying heart to you and I'm going to worship you until you touch me. I woke up the next morning about 4 a.m. I went out into the, into the kitchen. I put on a little quiet mu worship music in the dark and I simply lay on the carpet and I said to God, I need you. My heart is out of order. I don't understand my own cries. And I just worshiped God. I gave myself to him until till the light came up. I did that again the next morning. I did it the third morning. I did it a fourth morning. I got up off that carpet on the fourth morning and my heart was okay. I was free. I had loved God long enough for my heart to find peace. And it just let go of this crazy, silly and unhelpful pang. Now that's just one of the outcomes of worship. One of the greatest challenges we face is this deep inward shame that I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not holy enough, I don't have enough, all of that shame-based stuff. And God knows that ultimately the answer is not trying harder. It is simply exposing your heart to the love of God until your identity is simply wrapped up and it, your identity is just made sweet and clean in the fact that if God be for me, who dare stand against me? That's one of the great miracles of life. And if you think that worship is just the half hour that you do in church on a Sunday morning, you're missing out on, on the most. Because it's the, it's the worship that goes on in your car, as you're lying in bed, when you get up first thing in the morning, when you go to bed late at night. It's those moments where you simply expose your heart to God and you empty your heart before God. And you, again, lean into the love of God. They're the great worship moments. And what happens in church on a Sunday is just another expression of that. Do not confine your worship to those few moments because there's more to come. Then, of course, there's the miracle of service. How do you connect with God? Do you realise that using your gifts and serving God is one of the ways you connect with God because the Bible says it is God who is in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, if I had tried to... I wouldn't be here today if the call of God had meant I left teaching and went into seminary uh, and tried to theoretically kind of build um, a preacher's heart by sitting and reading books. The heart for preaching for me came from beginning to take my first opportunities to share Jesus. As a high school teacher, I was in a high school and it was about three years in that I had a conversation with a bunch of girls at the back of a typing class. And the girls were telling me what they'd done over the weekend, the drunkenness falling in the birthday cake, this girl fell in the bath. And these were young 14-year-old kids and they're just living like animals. And I said to them, don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that you're not an animal? 
don't you know that you're a child created for the kingdom of heaven? And they, and they said, well, explain that to us. And I told them a number of things. And at the end of them, one of, that, one of the little girls looked me in the face and said, if these things are true, how come nobody ever tells you about it? And I went home and I said to Helen, a girl asked me a great question in a typing class today. They said, if what we know is true, how come nobody tells you about it? Helen, we've got to try. And so what we did, we, we just opened our home. I gave out a bunch of invitations in my typing classes and said my home is going to be open on Friday night. On the first Friday night, 35 kids turned up. And it was on for young and old. I got out my guitar, I began to sing, I'd start writing songs, began to sing them. Then I opened the Bible and said, if you'll come every Friday night, I'll tell you stuff no one else will tell you. And you see, all I did was take my opportunity to serve God. I've got a mouth, I'm a teacher, well then teach. Engage our goods and strengths in the active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in the world. The only reason that I am here today is because I started to serve and in serving it expanded my capacity to love and to honour God and I connected with God in that process. Now, God has a, an area in which if you were prepared to, to take who you are and begin to in some way deliberately use it to glorify God and help pe people, it will expand you because God is in you both to will and to do. And when you start working on them, when you start, uh, see, God's not opposed to effort. He's just opposed to the idea of earning. He's not opposed to effort. He's not opposed to you really putting it in. But he's opposed to the idea that if you, the more you put in, the more you'll like it. That he's opposed to. But he knows that just like any athlete, if you will not run the laps, you'll never be in the Olympic game. You can't just read a book on the Olympics. At some point, you've got to put your shoes on and start running the laps. At some point, you've got to take what you are and make it available in your community, in your local church, in your school, in your workplace. You've got to find a way to serve. And again, ask and say, you know, I'd love to do that. Would someone show me how to use the gifts I've got? Um, and because if you do, that's where change begins. Now, here's some more of them. Here's the next one. Learning the discipline of prayer. Now, I've heard about prayer all my life, but I never knew how to pray until someone gave me $600 one day and said, use this any way you want. And immediately I knew I wanted to go to Yongi Cho's church in Seoul, Korea and do one of those weeks that he had for ministers. So I went to Seoul, Korea in 1986 and I visited the largest church in the world. On the weekend I was there, 525,000 people attend that church over a weekend. It's a big church, I want to. But during the week, the thing that stunned me was watching prayer. I'd never seen prayer like it. Um, because the South Koreans live like within spitting distance of some of the craziest people on the universe in North Korea, they pray like nobody's business. I went to a Friday night prayer meeting. I have never heard prayer like it. 50,000 people. It was like the standing under the roar of a waterfall. And I've been to so many prayer meetings where people are just all silent and looking at the carpet, not in Korea. They pray like there's no tomorrow. I went up onto Prayer Mountain where 10,000 people every day are there, 24 hours a day. And people rent a little concrete foxhole to go up there and spend 21 days in prayer and seek God for breakthroughs in their life. And the, and the testimonies of miracles were absolutely astounding. But here's what changed my life. During that week, I heard a guy unfold a teaching on prayer and he taught, taught us how to use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for prayer. How to take our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and so on. And so you pray. And when, when I said, I said, oh, I could do that. And for the next seven years, I would get up early in the morning and I would use this as a pattern for prayer and it totally changed my life. Now, one of the things that I learned to do during that period of time was I was um, living on an acre and a half. Helen and I bought an acre and a half. But the back half acre, I hated it because it was all bushy and hard to mow. And I, and I wanted to get out of debt. And, and so I was trying to subdivide the back half acre and I couldn't do it. They wouldn't, the council wouldn't let me. So what I was doing every morning when I got to the give us this day our daily bread, I would stand in my study and lift my hands over that back half acre and I would say, Father in heaven, I want to be free of debt. I pray over this back half acre. Lord, give me the opportunity to subdivide that and give me the opportunity to get out of debt. And I would pray over that and that would be one of my 
issues a prayer every morning. Later that year, we had a party in our house and at the end of the night, a lady came up to me with an envelope in her hand and she said, Pastor, the, the God told me to give you this. And I opened it up. It was a cheque for $5,000. She said, it's a gift, but it's not a gift. You have to give it back again. She said, the Lord told me to give you this money and tell you to use it to get out of debt. And the moment she said that, I knew what that related to because that was my daily prayer. God was listening to me every morning. He spoke to her and triggered the moment. I went back to the council, applied to subdivide the loan. This time it went through, subdivide the loan, subdivide the land. Can't subdivide a loan now. That'd be a miracle right there. <laughs> Subdivided the land, took off the back half acre, and as I went off to India, Helen said, I'm going to check with an estate agent exactly what that's worth. I thought it was worth about so much. When I came home, she said, Al, that's worth twice what you thought it was worth. And right at that time was the peak in the land prices. We sold it one week before that boom broke. I was out of debt. I was able to buy a pastor a house in India. I was able to take my kids and my family to the US for the first trip I ever did on that whole thing, the search for intimacy. My entire life changed around that moment of prayer and I was able to give that girl back her $5,000. That flowed from, no one heard me pray that prayer except Jesus. And he spoke and, and as a result, God blessed my life. The reality is this, if you can learn to pray you can connect with God in ways that you'll never connect in any other way, but you've simply got to learn the discipline of prayer. And one of our challenges is we start things like a diet and we go for three days and we say, oh, well, nothing happened, and we let it tail away. God is really interested in playing hide-and-seek. He loves to play hide-and-seek and God loves to wrestle. You've got to know that. God loves to wrestle. Jacob found out he's willing to do it. He'll wrestle you all night long, if you will. Jesus would go out in, in the night and he'd... he'd pray all night long. God likes a good wrestle and he loves to play hide and seek but you've got to be willing to seek him out because if you get pouty and say, oh, I couldn't find him, I'm not going to get him anymore and you walk off, he'll let you walk away. Um, you've got to believe that he's, he's for you and if you can learn to pray, you will connect with God in, in ways that will change your life and other people's lives as well. Then there's the miracle of fellowship, engaging in all of this stuff with other people. And again, I, I, small groups is just one of the best ways in which to deliberately do this. And the thing is, you've got to choose this. You've got to choose it. Why would I go to a small group? Because fellowship is one of the ways in which God wants us to pursue him, not just alone with a group of others. Uh, then there's the issue of confession. The learning, and you will never do this if you don't produce, if you don't get some kind of small group connection, you, there'll be sins you will never confess to anybody. Because you've got to have some trusted people in your life. And if you, there are people you don't trust enough, there are things you'll never say out loud, and as a result, you'll never be as free as you were intended to be. One of the sad experiences of the church is watching good leaders go down. Ted Haggard, one of the great leaders of the past couple of decades. But Ted Haggard got into this stupid business of messing around with methamphetamines and, and homosexuality crazy stuff. Afterward, he said this, I've always had a struggle in my life, but when I had people to whom I could confess it, I handled the struggle okay. He said, I found myself withdrawing, and when I withdrew, I stopped confessing, and the thing just overwhelmed me, and I acted, and he, and he damaged himself, he damaged his ministry, and I know what that means. I took over the church I led for 26 years, because the, the, senior, the previous minister committed adultery with the church secretary. He wasn't a bad man. He wasn't an immoral man. He was a man with a weakness, and he had nowhere to confess that there was a struggle going on in his life. And as a result, he, he was no longer in ministry, and I got to take his place. I don't want to follow down that same pathway. There are people to whom things have to be confessed. Now we've got to get to the bit I really want to just open up. One of these areas, we come to disciplines of abstaining. Um, one of the things is frugality. I've been to India and I have seen orphanages where 50 kids' lives are totally being changed and that's only the result of somebody making a decision not to buy an expensive car but to buy a cheaper car and put 50,000 bucks into that orphanage and now 50 kids their lives are being changed. You realise, man, frugality 
is an amazing way of connecting. They have more joy in their life out of what they didn't spend than over all the stuff they've ever spent money on in their life. And you realise that frugality is a discipline. It's one of the reasons I teach people how to budget. And one of the things to build into a budget is what I call the seed bag. Learn to budget for generosity because it gives you a pool of funds to do amazing things with. And that little bit of frugality can be a monstrous change for someone else. And in that moment, you'll connect with God in ways you haven't done before. Sacrifice, laying aside rights to see blessing and help come to somebody else. But this is the one I've got to, to uh, uh, look at for a few moments. I want to take a few moments to talk to you about this miracle, the miracle of fasting. You can connect with God if you are willing to learn how to fast and pray. Um, it's a discipline. The discipline of fasting and prayer is simply that no one would do this unless you make a very serious decision. Nobody likes missing out on things that we have every right to enjoy. Why would you possibly do a thing like this? Well, it's interesting to know this, that Jesus understanding the importance of fasting and prayer in the Sermon on the Mount never said, if you fast and pray, he said, whenever you fast and pray. The reason this matters so much to me is my church never taught me one thing about fasting and prayer. I grew up for the first 27 years of my life in a Lutheran church. And because we were Lutherans, there was one thing we were really important, very clear on, and that is it was Christ alone. And so we were really concerned about saying anything that looked like we were doing something because it's supposed to be by faith, not by works. And I understand that. But you've got to understand God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to the idea that my effort earns something. The thing is that uh, if you want a relationship, you do need to pursue it. Um, you need to pursue it. You need to give it the time and the energy that it deserves. And Jesus said, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when, not if, but when. And for the first 25 years of my life, I never fasted because no one ever told me it was possible. Didn't have a, didn't have a clue. Uh, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now why on earth would you ever do something? What is God? Is God a meaning? God, if you're not suffering, I'm not excited about you. What's, what's, what's the deal with fasting and prayer? The issue is that God has a nature. And God has been pleased to reveal to us the way he feels and thinks about issues. The Bible says, for example, in God's nature, he loves humility. It's like perfume to him. The Bible says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. Do you think you can do it by yourself? No, no then why don't you humble yourself and throw yourself into God's hands because God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God loves humility. That's the first issue that's involved. And I'll explain how that works in a minute. The second is that God loves faith. He loves it when people believe he is the answer to their issues. That there's an answer in God. That is not um, the deus absconditus, the faraway God who hides himself and you can never get connected with him. You can't touch God. In fact, if I heard anything, when I went to Seoul, Korea, one of the things Yong Yi Cho made so clear, he says, you can touch the heart of God in fasting and in prayer. And he had so many stories to tell to explain how that worked. Here's the second thing God loves, the Bible says God loves people to seek him out. God loves to play hide and seek. He loves you to believe he is the answer and to pursue him, seek him out on a particular answer. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God 
must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There's an answer for you. See, I have a neighbour just three houses down from me who at this moment is saying to his boys, um, let's believe God that I'll be able to walk again. Because right now, he's a paraplegic. His legs don't work. Nothing works from below the waist. And uh, I, I feel like pursuing God with him and for him, for this man, for my next door neighbour. Now, so how does fasting fit into that? I mean, what's fasting got to do with it? Well, it's because of the power of fasting in the human soul. You see, fasting is an act of humility. It is a recognition, I can't do this alone. Psalm 35, 13 says this, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled my soul with fasting. Anyone that's ever fasted for longer than 15 minutes will tell you that one of the interesting one of the interesting consequences of fasting is the sense that it causes you in your heart to bow down and say, I have nowhere else to go but you. You are my only help and my only strength. Um, and the Bible goes on to say this. Do you want to see how, Im how impacted God is by humility? Take a great prophet like Elijah. He comes to a wicked king. And he says, Ahab, I've got a prophetic word. Would you like to hear a prophecy, Ahab? Oh, yeah, give me a prophecy, something from God. All right, how about this one? The one who belongs to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. How about that one? Write that down. Remember that one every now and then. The Bible says this, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, inside him, it's always the women's fault. Now, you think that guy's, his goose is cooked. One of the great prophets puts his finger in his face and says, mate, you're cooked. Well, the Bible then goes on to say this. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and it went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days because God looks into the son's heart and doesn't find any humility. You can move the heart of God. Even wicked people can move the heart of God if they're willing to seek his face. How much more you who are profoundly loved by God because of your love for Jesus, you are loved by God. You can move the heart of God in fasting and prayer. Now, why would you do it? Why would you fast? What could provoke you to do something like this? Well, simply because restoration is needed. And that's exactly where I found myself as a high school teacher back there the very first time I ever fasted. Fasting, why? Because restoration is needed. Listen to what the Bible says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. The first time I ever fasted was because Helen and I cared about our school. It wasn't for us, it was for, for our school. I was, we were reaching out to the kids. I was leading the ISCF Thursdays at school, and on Friday night my home was open, and up to 100 kids on a Friday night would turn up at my house. Now, the problem was the community can't start to figure out that every Friday night there were kids coming from every direction over this new estate and turning up at my house, and sometimes all those, some of those kids weren't that well behaved, and then boys found out the girls were at my house, and they'd turn up in cars and want to take some of the girls away, and as it, it turned into a war zone for, over the lives of these kids. And one night it got so bad, there was a delegation of neighbours came to my house to say to me, you have to stop reaching out to these kids because it's, we, don't want, we don't want our neighbourhood under this kind of attack. And it was at that time I found a little book on fasting and prayer. I'd never read a word on fasting and prayer to that point in my life. And when I read this little book on fasting and prayer and I realised there were verses in the Bible, I'd never read those verses. I didn't know, and he said, this is what, what you do. You humble yourself and you say, I would rather 
have God meet this need, then I have my daily food. And as a result, the first time I ever fasted was for the, for the sake of our open house, a Friday night, where the, the, the previous Friday night had been a war zone. And I fasted Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, three days. I put aside all my food and I simply would go to God in my room and say, Lord, you've got to help us. You've got to help us. These kids need you. They need you. The next night, that Friday night, you would have thought somebody had pulled a veil of peace over that house. The entire the sense of peace and security. Kids would walk through that door and as they walked through that door, they would feel it too. God was in the house and peace was in the house and the, the consequences were so dramatic. I knew I'd found a way to touch God. And as a result, it became something that saved my life. Listen, one of the most potent experiences I ever had was in an experience of fasting and prayer that changed, again, the direction of my life. Three years into being, leaving, leaving teaching and going into full-time ministry on a ministry team was a challenging experience, but a wonderful one. But at the end of three years, my pastor said to me, uh, because there's a little tension between us, he said, Alan, I'm standing you down from ministry and I want you to go into our school and teach the kids. You mean you're a high school teacher? Go teach the kids and we'll see what God has for your future. I was so hurt by that. I felt like I'd laid down my career. Now I'm in this little Christian school. I think, what the heck's that about? And I got so hurt, I realised my life was spiralling downward. And if I didn't get out of this funk, uh, I would never be useful to God again. And there one night I got so desperate, I said to God, I've, I've got to break through the hurt. I'm going to fast and pray. I'd found a way to touch God. And so Friday night I made a decision and I said to God, I will fast and pray for 21 days because my life is on the line here. Well, Saturday was day one. Sunday morning was day two. I woke up in the morning and, and when I woke my heart was full of love. I loved God. I loved the church. I loved my senior minister. I loved everybody. I was in love with heaven. I, was, I, cannot, I cannot put into words how extraordinary it was to wake up that day after being so hurt for so long and find the hurt was gone and my heart was filled with love. I went to church and I loved it. I loved the service. I loved the worship. I loved the people. I loved my, minister, my friends on the ministry team. And I realised that they're not the problem, Al. You've just got to guard your heart. You've got to guard your heart. Well, that was the second day. The third day, we spotted that block of land, that, uh, that acre and a half up there in Lilydale. On the fifth day, God spoke to me prophetically and said, I'll take you back and I'll turn you into a shepherd. On the sixth day, we bought that block of land. Over the next 21 days, every good thing that I am living in today came out of that 21 days. And the very day I started building my house on that block of land, the elders from Mount Evelyn Church of Christ came to me and said, would you consider becoming our pastor? A door opened and an entirely new experience of ministry unfolded, which we then lived out for the next 26 years. That was all, of, all the good things I'm living in came out of those 21 days of fasting and prayer. I had a breakthrough. Now, I've got one more story to tell you, and then we're done. Why would you fast? Well, because healing and deliverance is needed. I don't see one of the problems with being a believer that believes that God will move is you get frustrated with God because he moves so slowly. You want to see God touch your whole city. God takes a long time to move suddenly. And one of the most important things, one of the most important things you can ever know is that you can touch the heart of God and things can be different if there is a willingness to seek him. Now, let me read this passage from the Bible and then tell you one more story. In Matthew 17, we read that extraordinary story about the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, James and John. God turns up the voltage. Jesus starts shining like the sun. Peter doesn't know what to say, so he says stupid things like, why don't we build a house up here for, for you and Elijah and so on, and you guys can have a house. Um, good, nice thinking, Peter. And eventually, uh, they see the glorified Jesus on that mountain. Down in the valley, the remaining uh, disciples are having a problem because a father has brought a demon-possessed child for help. 
and they're trying to get help for this kid and no help is coming. They feel like the church in Australia feels right now. God, where are the miracles that our forefathers once spoke about? Where are the great breakthroughs, Father? Well, Jesus comes down from the mountain and the Father comes to Jesus and says, I brought my child to your disciples and they couldn't help him. Lord, have mercy. And Jesus said to him, if you believe, all things are possible. And he said, Lord, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Next thing you know, this demon erupts. Jesus casts the demon out of this kid, hands him back to his father, and afterwards a little ministry team discussion takes place. And the disciples start saying to Jesus, how come we couldn't get an answer? How come we couldn't get breakthrough? This is what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, it's because of the littleness of your faith. Now, I don't want to torment you, but the fact is we have to recognise our faith here in Australia needs to be stretched and expanded. And, and the, the point is, well, how would you do that? Well, he goes on, he says this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, things will happen. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I know that this is an editorial addition to the text. And the reason it's in there is because the early church knew that's what Jesus was talking about. Because, you see, the reality is, I've already been down to pray for my neighbour once. And the thing is, he's as paralysed today as he was when I went down there and prayed with him. But see, I'm not locked into that. So, oh, I tried, I tried, you know. Jesus said, you know, the problem, boys, was this. You, need, you didn't have great faith for this kid, but if you had persisted, if you'd leaned on this thing, and if you'd been willing to fast and pray and say, this kid is getting help before he leaves because the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. We're going to lean on this thing. This kind, uh, you would have seen the same results. The reason I got where I went is because I've been given the spirit without measure. You've been given a measure of the Spirit and you need to work on yours. You need to expand the capacity of your faith. You're going to have to lean on some things and they may not change as quickly as if Jesus was there in person to do the same thing. Now, I'll tell you a story. I was in full-time ministry. I'm believing God for great things. I was invited to go away and, and, and speak for a youth camp and away I went and I'm wanting to see God touch these kids. So I'm preaching my head off and I'm praying over people. And it was like I was shooting them with blanks. Absolutely nothing was happening. And I went home miserable. And I said to God, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more of your power and of your, your, your grace released to people than this. And I said, I'm going to seek your face. So I'm going to fast and pray for you to expand my faith. So I started Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, seven days of fasting and prayer. On the following Monday, I'm still in fasting and prayer, a young man comes into my office. He's a motorcycle police officer. He'd been going out with a girl I led to Christ when I was a high school teacher. He had made a pass at her. She had rebuked him in Jesus' name and he had collapsed unconscious on the ground. <laughs> See... He, he tried that, that, that he, tried, he tried his little Romeo techniques with her jumper and she rebuked him and he collapsed unconscious on the ground. And then when he came to, she said, you better go see my pastor. So now he's sitting in my office. He, he said, what happened to me? I said, well, we'll talk about that second. Let me talk to you about Jesus first. And so for 40 minutes, I talked to him about Jesus and his claims on his life. And at the end of that 40 minutes, he said, I think I want to give my life to Jesus. So I said, all right, I'll lead you in prayer. I led him in a prayer of salvation. He fell off his chair, bang, on the floor and started to writhe around on the floor like a snake. Now, I had seen it before, so I wasn't shocked and I went and got a cup of coffee. And, <laughs> and I came back and I sat down and I waited until he came to. And when he came to, I got him back up in his chair again and I said to him, young man, you're demonised. Now, I don't know how it happened and I guess there's two ways we could go about this. I could yell at this thing, and it might come out right here and right now, but I would say to you, if you in, in the state you are in, this is two situations now where you've been knocked unconscious by this thing, I would give my life to Jesus lock, stock and barrel, and I would be baptised immediately. 
The Bible says repent, be baptised. I'm not going to get you filling out a decision card and wait three years. You need it now. So I said next, tomorrow morning we have a healing meeting here. If you come tomorrow and you're willing to give your life to Christ, lock, stock and barrel, I'll baptise you. Well, next morning I'm now been, I'm now been fasting into the next week. So he, uh, he, come, he turns up and uh, I've got this group of people and I, uh, I got up and I spoke and first on baptism. I said, you know, the way that you sign your life on the dotted line is through baptism. If you want to buy a car, well, it's already nice that you like it and you say, I want it, sign the contract. And that's how you sign a contract with Jesus. You get baptised in his name. Now, if, you t if, you, if anyone here today wants to just hand their life to Christ, out comes the police officer, out comes an old lady dying of cancer, and out comes a young housewife, three of them now, standing in to be baptised. Well, we take them out the back. The, the, the tank was all full, ready to go. They put their white stuff on. I put the police officer in the tank and I baptised the dude and that demon came up and went nuts. He's sitting in that tank screaming like a banshee, wild as a, thrashing around, hiding under the water. You can't hide under the water for long. You need to know that. <laughs> you, that's not a, that is not going to work, buddy. And I'm dragging him out and he's trying to hide under there again. I'm dragging him out. He must have got baptised at least seven times. I reckon... <laughs> We did a naming with that guy, seven times in the River Jordan. I said to the guy with me, he does not get out of this tank till this thing leaves. And for 40 minutes it's gone on, and I got sick of it. Eventually I grabbed him by his ears, and I pulled his face up close to mine, and I rebuked that thing. His eyes went bright red, and bam, out it came. He sat there crying like a baby. Jesus, I'll follow you all the days of my life. He gets out of the tank and sits there and the Holy Spirit falls on the dude. He's just filled with God. We get the old lady in the tank. I baptise her. She starts screaming, the pain's gone, the pain's gone. She was instantly touched by the parrot. We got her out of the tank. I get the next one in. I baptise her. She starts screaming. But for her, it wasn't, this wasn't demons. This was just the goodness of God. She was screaming for, for the joy. It was like joy inexpressible. She couldn't find words for it. I thought, this is the more power of God than I've seen in a while. And out we got all the sick people lined up. <clears throat> Halfway down that prayer line, I laid hands on one woman. She collapses to the ground. She gets up and said, oh, I broke my ribs in a car accident. Oh, they're healed, she said, they're healed. I saw more of the power of God in that little 40-person healing meeting than I've seen in all of the healing evangelists of, I have ever visited my whole... It was amazing. Why? Because I sought God in fasting and prayer. I believed that there was more and I was willing to seek him for it. Fasting and prayer is a point of access to touch the heart of God. And I simply want to say to you today, once you know that, you can recognise the privilege that you have. You can touch the heart of God. Many times people have been deeply frustrated because they know there's more in the kingdom for themselves, for their family, for their church, and they don't know how to touch it. When I was in Seoul, Korea, to see a church of 525,000, when a hundred years earlier there was not a single church in Seoul, Korea, and yet today the largest Pentecostal church, the largest Presbyterian church, and the largest Methodist church in the world are in that one city. Why? It is a city of fasting and prayer. I learned that when I visited. You have the privilege of fasting and prayer. And today I simply want to say to you right here in this beautiful church of Christ, you have no idea what your future could be. You can't earn anything from God, but he doesn't mind you seeking him and expending some effort and paying a price to do it. You know he doesn't love you more, but he's moved by humility and he's moved by faith. And fasting and prayer is one way that you can express that. Father, today I want to pray over these precious people. I want to pray over them because these people love you. I felt it here in the worship. Uh, I see it in the way they talk about you and about the way they talk about the ministry of this church. These people love you, Father, and they long to see more of your hand at work. This is my prayer. Draw near as they draw near to you. For everyone here that begins to make a choice to seek your face, Lord, play hide and seek. Suddenly be there 
and suddenly show them the power of your hand and they'll be so glad that you did. Well, I'm going to hand you back to your pastor. I have, I have one resource with me because for some people, what I've just said is not enough. You're now saying, well, how do you go about fasting and prayer? I created, because of the breakthroughs I've had in fasting and prayer, I created a resource to explain the theology and then to explain the practice. How do you do it and what are the dangers? What, don't, what not to do? How do you break a fast? How do you have a fast? If you have no idea, I have a resource that could help you to do it. All I can say is I'm grateful. And in a moment, I'm, I'll, I'm going to come back and I'll pray with anyone this morning. who would distantly love to come and say to God, here I am, I just want to touch you in new ways. God bless you, Andrew.